We're back, baby. I'm Will Ross. I'm Devin Scott. Today we're talking about the 1964 Cold War thriller Failsafe and how it uses contrast in its black and white cinematography and elsewhere in order to maximize the unbearable tension of watching it. Welcome to Film Formally. I just want to clear this up for anyone listening. Today we are talking about the 1964 film in which a systemic failure leads to American bombers unwittingly launching an unprovoked attack on the USSR. As the clock ticks down to atomic holocaust, the American government finds itself collaborating with the heads of the Soviet government to avert disaster. This of course fails and the film ends in a nuclear bloodbath. Shot in high contrast, noir-inflected black and white, this film features disarming performances by multiple major comedic actors. That clears it up, right? We all know exactly what movie we're talking about now. <laughs> There's no confusion whatsoever. Oh, I see. We're doing this. We're already yeah. doing this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the Doctor Strange Love podcast. Oh, boy. I'm so no. sorry, Will. No. no. It's about a better film than Doctor Strange Love. <laughs> yeah, it's about... It's it's about the film that everyone says that, oh, you know, you just assume you shouldn't watch it. But no, you should. You ought to. It's a better movie. It's called. It's at least. Day, it's called The Day After by Nicholas Myers. <laughs> it's at least comparable, like, or at least it's so worth your time. It's Failsafe. It's Failsafe by Sidney Lumet. We're talking about Failsafe. We are. This movie rules. It's it's one of our favorites. I remember, yeah. Will, you, you saw it, like, what, in 2013 or whatever? Yeah. And you, Devin, you got to watch this movie. And I was like, okay. And you sat me down. You like I think you actually tied me to a chair and forced <laughs> me to watch it. I have and never. I was like, I, yeah. This is worth I, it. This is worth the pain. I have never had a reaction like it to a movie. I was watching it on a laptop in my bedroom and just threw it on for yucks, basically. And was just instantly spellbound by it because I was just going through one of those periods. I just rewatched Doctor Strange Love. I was like, oh, I should finally check out this movie that's kind of known as being the unfunny, not as good Strange Love that came out the same year. Watched it, was just instantly loved it so much and had to show it to someone. And like Devin and I were living together at the time and ran down to the living room and was like, Devin, you have we have to watch this and we have to watch this <laughs> right now. <laughs> And we and did. I was like, I was like, Will, stop yelling. Yeah. <laughs> We're not just talking about failsafe, though, right? We're talking about a specific formal element of failsafe. This is Film Formally, a podcast about film formally. So we're talking about contrast, right? Yes. Contrast. Contrast in failsafe. Whoa, Einstein. What's contrast? Explain yourself. What is contrast at the most basic level? Contrast yes. Like, is, what is the definition of contrast? Yeah. It's like the degree of difference between two, two things. things. I am not you. You are not me. That's a contrast. I have brown hair and someone else might have blonde hair. That's a contrast between those two people. When we're talking about images, contrast usually means how distinctly juxtaposed and how far apart the dark parts of the image and the light parts of the image are. Yes, it's a luminance specifier. So let's, let's get into color for a second, okay? What makes up an image? I'm going to assume we're talking about digital images because that's the lens through which we're most familiar with. Um, we can also talk about silver halide crystals and celluloid film, but that's kind of a different way of achieving what we're talking about here. So exactly. what is contrast in, let's, and again, for the sake of making this explanation ra rather simple in a digital image. Contrast in a digital image refers to the 
difference in luminance between one pixel versus another pixel. What is a pixel? A pixel is you're looking at a screen, right? Let's say you're looking at a 1080p HDTV, right? That's 1,920 pixels wide by 1,080 pixels high. That's around 2 million individual dots of light on that screen. Each one has a set of instructions that tell it what color and luminance value it is shooting at you, right? So if you have a bunch of white pixels on the side of your screen, a bunch of black pixels on the other side, and the, and, and the white is fully saturated and the black is fully unsaturated, right? There's no light coming from the black pixels. That is the maximum amount of contrast you can get from your display. So the difference between the brightest point on your screen and the darkest point on your screen, or the darkest point of a cinematic image, that is contrast. If you have an image that is 50% black, 50% white, that's about the highest degree of contrast you can get, right? So in terms of what comes across as us humans to contrast visually, it's an art, not a science. Uh, there are variables that affect our qualitative understanding of that. But we're not just talking about one image, right? That's contrast in a photo. What about in a film? If you cut from a white shot to a black shot, then to white shot again, you're creating contrast. Even though each of those images is low contrast in and of itself. Um, there's also stuff like temporal contrast, right? Um, and this is getting away from color science, but I think it it plays into what we're talking about, right? If you have a shot that goes on for a minute and then a bunch of shots that last a second, that's temporal contrast. You're contrasting the length of the shots. You also have stuff like, and again, we're going to get into this. You have sound contrast, right? You go from quiet to loud to quiet. You're contrasting different volumes, dynamics. We're going to focus more on the image part of this, but all of these types of contrast play a central role in Sidney Lumet's work in the 1964 film Failsafe that has knocked Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's so many interesting things to read and think about as far as Failsafe goes production-wise and its history with Dr. Strangelove. It's admittedly an important part of the film's identity, but we're, we're not going to touch on it too <laughs> no, much No, I mean, that's here, the last we'll speak of it. <laughs> a couple of maybe points of contrast are interesting, haha. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but as far as failsafe goes, so we've established what contrast is. We've already asserted that failsafe is contrasty. So let's talk about why failsafe is contrasty, how it's contrasty. What do we mean when we say that failsafe has really high contrast images? So in failsafe, one of the things you'll notice when you look at it is people's faces, where part of someone's face will be super heavily lit it'll be high luminance and then the other part of their face will be in total shadow this is what's called low key lighting low key meaning that you have a part of the frame that's very bright but the majority of it being very dark and, and, a, and a wide gulf between those two yeah and this is really unusual for hollywood cinematography it was a little less unusual in black and white cinematography which it, it, we should note this film was shot in black and white. Yes. And there, so there is no, another element of contrast that is totally off limits to this film is color contrast, right? You can have a blue shape and a red shape with the same luminance value, but you have color contrast. With black and white, the main difference is, at least to me, you're taking away that element. So you have to rely on differences in luminance to give depth to an image. Yep. Is it dark or is it light? And in failsafe, there's a lot of images where there's a lot in the frame that's super, super dark and a lot in the frame that's really light. And there's not much in the middle. <laughs> it uses negative space a lot, what's called negative space, which is a part of the image where there is very little detail. And so it's just a sort of 
flat area of the image without any sort of geometric activity going on or movement. That's that's negative space. And Failsafe uses a lot of that too. And it'll have like a big gray wall and a black shadow on the right and a big white beam on the left. And it plays a lot with those heavily contrasted areas of negative space. And I want to isolate a couple of moments here to really hone in on the tools they're using to achieve this. We're going to deal with the movie in a nonlinear way, you know, so we're going to jump around it. Yeah. More, we more, might spoil uh, it a bit. Watch the movie. Please watch the movie. There is a key scene where the president of the United States, Henry Fonda, playing a, a different president than he played in other films where he played a certain president. He's playing, he's basically what, playing JFK here, right? Like, ish? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I think he's playing Henry Fonda as the president, actually. Yeah, I, I think he, he, yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. He's, he, he's playing the archetype he represents as a president. Yep. So he's playing Abe Lincoln in the 60s. Um, the other 60s. Um, Henry Fonda spends the vast majority of his screen time in a white room in the film. It's a bunker way deep underground. The president's been taken so that he doesn't get blowed up by the nukes. And there is a scene, my, probably my favorite single shot in the film, where he picks up a phone, and there's a shot of him in profile, we'll put it in the show notes, where he is set against a white background, the side of his face fills most of the screen, and he is lit by a single source from off-camera, kind of backlighting, we, I would call it a top-light kicker, um, kind of backlighting him so you see a glint in his eye, but the majority of the side of the face that you're looking at is completely dark. Right. So you have this stark contrast between the black oval that is his head and the white background. This is achieved largely through lighting. Right. And then this cuts to another shot. And it's almost a graphic match of his interpreter facing the other direction, uh, lit in, in an inverse way. So the light is coming from the opposite side, but it is still the same effect. Right. It's almost like you flip the image you mirrored it. And each of these individual images does not contrast with the other in any significant way, but within the image you have this light, dark, light pattern. You can break it down to these geometric shapes, the oval of the character's head versus the um, relief of the background. And those are probably the contrastiest shots in the whole film. But not only that, not only do the frames have a high amount of contrast within the frames, they contrast with the shots surrounding them. Because they're largely they largely take place so this, the other scenes largely take place in rooms where the characters are the brightest things in them. Black kind of voids where the characters are lit, but the background is not. So you have the contrast within the frames, but you also have the contrast cutting from shot to shot. And that gives the film its kind of trademark light, dark, light rhythm. And, and this is due to two things in this case. And we can get into the other tools. But this is due to the lighting and the production design. Right, the decision to place the dark characters in a bright room, and I, and I mean dark, the lighting on the characters is dark, <laughs> and the uh, brightly lit characters in a dark room uh, to create layers of contrast. That's a good summary, I think, of Failsafe's aesthetic. And there's so much to talk about with kind of the different facets of its lighting. I wanted to quickly, while we're talking about the images, I wanted to mention that there are other aspects of the film visually that create the contrast as well. One of the one of the obvious aspects is the film doesn't have a lot of title cards, but it has title cards that are usually, it's a time and place and it is just white on black. 
So there will be a hard cut to a title card. It's white text on black, very stark. But at the beginning of the film... Yeah, I was hoping you'd bring this up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the, the moment when I fell in love with the film when I first watched it was there's a dream sequence. And the dream sequence is interesting for contrast in and of itself because it should, it depicts a bullfight and... It's been rotoscoped to be contrast here. Yeah, a major character is watching it in the stands and he's rotoscoped to appear much, much lighter than the surrounding elements of the frame. And the in the bullfight he's watching, the bull he's watching is rotoscoped to be much, much darker than the rest of the frame. And the character's name is General Black, by the way, and he's rotoscoped <laughs> to look more white. And he has white hair. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's important. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. he's watching this bullfight. So there's that, and then he wakes up, and right after he opens his eyes, it cuts to the title card, and it's block text, the words fail safe, in black text over white, and then it cuts to the exact inverted image of white text over black, and then it cuts back all within the space of about a second. Then it cuts back to his wide open eyes. It teaches the audience how to watch the film. And this is a principle that I will yammer on about to the day I die, is it is a good idea in general for the first scene of your film and I think Failsafe is one of my favorite examples of this, that's a good time to introduce the formal tools you're going to use to tell your story or to tell your idea. I, I can't think of a better way to introduce that light, dark, light pattern of the film than that title card. And, and again, after that very quickly cuts dream sequence and that title card, which unusually has multiple cuts within the title card, then the next shot of the film is actually a very long shot. It has camera movement. The next few shots are very lengthy. So it sets up this rhythmic contrast as well. So the film is just setting up these really uneasy shifts. I want to also emphasize how the film structures its contrast decisions, where um, I think Lumen is one of the all-time great filmmakers of uh, formalist structures in film. Uh, 12 Angry Men is probably the most famous example, where he started at the beginning of the film, he's on medium to wide-angle lenses, and by the end of the film, they're on long lenses like 85 plus the entire time um again uh, ratcheting up the tension subtly um failsafe is a bit less clean than that but it still has a very distinct structure to its contrast decisions where as the tension builds and builds and builds it isn't that the editing gets faster it's that the contrast in the editing get more stark so at the beginning the in the first half of the film the rhythms of the editing are they're never they're never easy, but they're a lot more fluid and a lot less visible than in the last half of the film, where suddenly you'll have a four-minute shot bookended by these incredibly fast cuts. And you'll have shots, you'll have light, dark, light patterns over and over and over, and any kind of nuance within spaces is flattened into this incredibly high contrast feeling. So the film evolves in that way. Yeah, it's such a great example of a film that has, uh, as you said, it's not clean, but it has such a dense formal superstructure in spite of having at its bottom like a really simplistic formal conceit of just let's do contrast. Let's punch you in the face with images, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, the reason why I think contrast suits failsafe so well, we're talking so much about contrast, but we're not getting into why it works for failsafe. Why does it work for failsafe? It's it's a it's a movie about nuclear war, right? It's a it's about the being on the brink between existence and non-existence, right? Where small decisions and small like the tiniest of errors are the difference. Technically, an image with one white pixel and one black pixel and nothing but gray in between is high contrast, 
but it's not doesn't really register that way as high contrast to us. The reason being that the smaller the distinction between the really bright parts and the really dark parts are, the more contrasty it registers to us. Similarly, a big part of this movie is the idea that because of the way that the Cold War and nuclear proliferation has happened, that all it takes is a tiny mistake, a tiny error in judgment for nuclear war to happen, for absolute devastation to happen. There's no gray area in between. And, and this gets into like a major theme of the film. Here's one of the Strange Love comparisons that I'll indulge in. I think Dr. Strangelove is about, isn't it scary? All it takes is one madman in a room of reasonable people to cause nuclear war. And Failsafe is about, isn't it scary? All it takes is a room full of reasonable people to cause nuclear war. It's a film that is deliberately uncomfortable to look at and to exist in that world for any period because everything feels provisional. Um, there's not a single frame in the film where the composition is balanced. There's not a single moment where the lens isn't a little too wide or too narrow. Um, there's not a single moment where the lighting feels like it, it emphasizes hu- the humanity of the characters versus kind of um, folding them into a space of stark lines. Yeah. A major theme in the film is the idea that humanity and an emphasis on the personal factor as it's called in the movie is being sucked away by this reliance on procedures and machinery and and mathematical calculation well it's a film that posits the cold war itself as this perpetual motion machine that will inevitably lead to our destruction it's not necessarily about the literal machines um and if i have one complaint about the film it's actually i think that it does kind of put too fine a point on the machine part um because i think it's more about systems (laughs) i think part of the reason the movie gets away with that that kind of overemphasis on the fallibility of machines this is a more functional benefit to the contrast is that the film is not in any way shape or form a realist world there's no attempt whatsoever to present a world where you think oh this is how generals and politicians (laughs) and pilots would actually behave moment to moment within these circumstances the film builds this completely fabulistic feeling reality where the sets feel brittle and not once do we actually believe that strategic air command looks like that um it feels like a theater piece (laughs) a member of the joint chief of staff will like have an argument with the civilian advisor to the pentagon about like what makes us worth living if we're willing to (laughs) inflict nuclear war on others even the commentary limits like i don't think generals would talk like this (laughs) you could easily read that as as an overwrought flaw but it's not a flaw it's It's a factor of the film's willingness to indulge in melodrama and the high contrast aesthetics the same way that Mm. kind of the Douglas Sirkian high saturation technicolor aesthetics of a lot of color melodramas uh, allow them to exist in those heightened spaces. The high contrast black and white of failsafe allows it to more persuasively exist in its own melodramatic context. And then that's shattered when we see documentary footage of New York the entire film is studio bound with the exception of b-roll shot around new york city that we see at the very end doesn't feature any characters in the film it's all vignettes of daily life um, in new york where we're suddenly faced with the fact that 
this all feels theatrical, but it's an illustration of how far removed these characters are from the day-to-day life of the consequences that their actions have, right? And suddenly we feel the consequences and it ties it into our reality. And again, that's another contrast, except this is more of a of an ontological contrast between the dramatic reality the film exists in and the reality that we exist in. Yeah, a huge, huge component of the film is how it's different kinds of footage interact. There's two other kinds of important footage, I think, in the movie that serves up its own kinds of contrast. Oh, you mean the two pieces of stock footage that they were allowed to use by the government? Well, the stock footage stuff is one, for sure. And I want to get into that. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the big board, the the big screens in the movie that show. Oh yeah, sort this of the map also of the features world. a big board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like like a certain other movie. The, there's a big board, and it's in multiple rooms in this movie, and it can sort of zoom in on different geographic areas and stuff. But everything is abstracted. It doesn't have pictures of planes or missiles. It has triangles or ovals. It doesn't have photographic detail of the geography it is representational outlines of different countries and their borders and i wonder if it influenced the game defcon or whether that's just war games <laughs> it did defcon is incredible by the way defcon is yeah. one of the greatest games ever made <laughs> um maybe i'm showing like what kind of things i value in media Will, Will likes games that are no fun to play but it, but great artistic statements um and i have to say defcon has made more of an impression on me than most games ever will so yeah, yeah. defcon defcon is absolutely insane do you like feeling terrified and helpless by defcon yeah anyways go but ahead war games is the biggest influence but they the developers definitely mentioned Failsafe and a certain other 1964 movie has major influences as well. <laughs> but yeah, so what's scary about that big board is that it's so heavily abstracted. Oftentimes the camera will move, will pan from characters and their detail of face or will zoom in away from them into the big board. And there's a sort of static covering everything. So we just move more and more into these abstract shapes that are like determining the force of the universe. And they're just these tiny little shapes playing out across the screen. Mm-hmm. And they, the fate of the world it depends on what happens with those little shapes, but we're totally disconnected from them. But there's one other visual way those shapes are represented within the film. And that is the stock footage. And that's, that's <laughs> now is a good time Let's to talk, get into Talk that. about working with <laughs> limited resources, my gosh. So the stock footage of this movie is often an infamous subject of criticism for failsafe. But they're wrong. I think the stock footage usage in this movie is absolutely brilliant. Uh, an all-time example of working within limitations. Sidney Lumet could not get his hands on stock footage for the movie. The Air Force would not cooperate. <laughs> um, stock footage houses wouldn't cooperate. He got like a tiny handful of stuff of fighters and bomber planes and anyone paying any attention over the course of the movie will notice very quickly that he shows completely different kinds of planes that are supposed to be the same plane at different moments of the film. And also, I mean, the, the, the bombers are portrayed as what are clearly fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> depending on, depending, on, depending again, on, on which piece of footage they had available. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, like, there's a takeoff sequence where they had one, t- they had one shot exactly of takeoff footage for a bomber. And, and, and when they want to show five bombers taking off, they just process the footage in five different ways. Like they'll yeah. speed it up. They'll punch in on it. They'll invert it. It's, it's yes. bonkers. And that winds up being integral to why the stock footage in the movie works. This all ties back into contrast, by the way. So be patient with me, people. The stock footage 
it's already quite beat up. It's low quality to begin with. And so what they do is that they will push it further. They'll use a negative version of the stock footage. In other words, they'll use a version Black is that, white, white is black. Exactly. Everything is inverted. They'll push in on it. They'll process it so that there's different degrees of contrast or darkness or light for different shots. They'll emphasize the different qualities of the stock footage. Like they'll, There's one sequence near the end of the film that is maybe the best sequence in the whole film. It involves a husband and wife having a conversation is all I'll say. <laughs> and it cuts between such radically different kinds of stock footage and it emphasizes the differences between them with these huge jumps in ambient sound. What makes the use of stock footage so great is that on the face of it, it is a realist representational depiction of the planes and what they're doing, but it's not. The stock footage itself is impressionist. It's, it's being abstracted. And the fact that certain stuff is inverted, the fact that some stuff is super beat up, is calling our attention to the falsity of the stock footage, to the fact that it's representational. So it allows this film to exist on these multiple different tiers of kind of representation. There's the stock footage and the big board stuff, which is abstracted or impressionistic in its degree of manipulation. There is the bulk of the footage, which is the stuff, you know, with people in rooms freaking out about how they're going to avert nuclear disaster. And then at the very end of the film is the one and only part that could be described as realist. And that's that's why the different kinds of footage intersect in such interesting ways. And it's the realist stuff that we we don't literally see it get blown up, but that's the stuff that gets blown up. <laughs> it all connects people. All these different kinds of footage are contrasting with each other in interesting ways, right? Like Yeah. They all demand to be understood in fundamentally different ways by us as viewers. There's a few specific things I really want to talk about. Um, not necessarily about the why, but about how the film winds you up with tension. Because I think this is yeah. the, the status of the, of the film as a suspense film is super important here. I really want to talk about how the film kind of crescendos, especially its temporal contrast in scenes like, you know, the scene where um, Cassio attacks Bogan? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's my favorite example of the film winding you up time-wise. Um, where you have these two extended shots of Cassio. This colonel who who's like second in command within the air command center. Yeah, so you get this scene where, yeah, the second in command who's been introduced, he gets introduced as being a quite unstable fellow. Um, he, um, you have Bogan who is collaborating with the Soviet general. Uh, Bogan is the head of strategic air command um, at the directive of the president. At the, yeah, yeah at the, at the, uh, under the orders of the president, he is collaborating with the Soviets to shoot down American bombers. Casio, you, you get these long shots oh, above thirty seconds. You can see him stewing and stewing, and then in the space of about five seconds, you have eleven edits, <laughs> where he picks up the telephone, whacks Bogan on the head, and attempts to essentially stage a coup. <laughs> Um, yeah. and uh, it's just one of the, it, that to me is still the most shocking moment in the whole film and a lot of it is down to the fact that the scene the edits those 11 edits are so unnerving just visually they could be about anything and the way the shots are arranged how it goes from these wide angle close ups of objects the edits are arranged in a way that 
there's a way you can edit things where the edits flow, right? You don't notice the edits, invisible editing. This is the exact opposite of that. Every single edit is given just enough time to breathe so that you feel the force of each cut. And moreover, each image is designed to be the inverse of the image that follows. So every single time it cuts, you are displaced, you know you're being displaced, and that happens 11 times in like five seconds. That underscores what's going on in the scene perfectly. It's possibly the height of the film's dramatic tension in that moment. It's a moment where the varying contrasting elements that make up the film's formal scheme uh, are most at war with each other, with possibly one other exception, which is the scene with the bomber captain's wife, uh, which we can also yeah. get into because they bring in other elements of contrast there too. Yeah, that moment is the is the big culmination of the film. It is. Formally, yeah. of what the film's been doing up to that point. And there's also one other moment of temporal contrast I want to talk about, which is the final call to the Soviet premiere. You have that kind of nothing shot where the president and the translator are sitting there and just nothing happens. They're just talking about the weather. <laughs> and then the single most important thing in the movie happens. President picks up the phone and it cuts from this innocuous flat kind of almost high key shot in terms of the lighting to that aforementioned profile, which is maybe the highest contrast single image in the whole film. It's not a title card and it just hits you in the, it just, it's like a brick. Yeah, it drops an anvil on you for sure. Uh, I keep using like hits you because I think the movie isn't a, it's an assault on your senses. Um, when I, I've seen this movie, I think five times now, and I've never not felt completely attacked <laughs> by the film. Um, I keep using violent imagery to describe my reaction to it, but I think it's because it's a violent movie. It's a movie that does violence to you with light. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the justification for black and white is that it's tense, right? It's conflict. Black and white is like a high contrast, high conflict aesthetic. The final scene where the president is on the phone with the premiere and you cut between those two profile shots is maybe my favorite shot, reverse shot in cinematic history, so I'm going to keep referring to it. But I think it also illustrates another principle of contrast that this movie uses to the utmost extent, which is compositional contrast. Whenever you have a composition in a two-dimensional frame, which is the vast majority of cinema, your eye has a focal point, a place where you want the audience to look, right? So, for example, on the shot of Henry Fonda, the profile, again, it's in the show notes, his eyes are on the left side of the frame. They're on the left thirds, as we would call it, which is the one-third mark of the frame. If you divide the frame into three, his eyes are on the first one. Reading from left to right. Yeah, reading from <laughs> left to right. His translator's eyes are on the right thirds. They are a significant amount of distance away from him. If you're watching it, especially on a large screen, every time it cuts, your eyes have to move from one part of the image to the other. Lumet, throughout this film, makes exquisite use of this. He deliberately creates frames where that take a little bit of time for your eyes to scan to the appropriate place for you to be looking. And he uses this to make his cuts more visible. So he'll cut to five or six things in quick succession sometimes that contrast compositionally so that your eyes have a hard time keeping up with the image. This is essentially the opposite trick that George Miller famously used in Mad Max Fury Road where he center framed everything so that your eyes would have to do the least amount of work possible. Although one exception to this is is that scene that you mentioned, Will, with the uh, bomber's wife, where you have a series of center frame compositions all in a row, but they're doing a lot of other stuff compositionally there and contrast-wise that I think 
creates a sufficiently heavy amount of contrast there. Yeah, that scene is incredible in that it loads up on so many different kinds of contrast. But the one thing that it holds back on is geometric use of contrast. That scene, it's, it's the bomber is talking to his wife and she's trying to convince him to turn back. And it's the probably, I don't know, it, it, the, the last 20 minutes of the movie has, have lots of emotional climaxes, but it is a emotional climax of the movie. It's interesting because everything suddenly is center framed because it cuts between people looking at not big boards, but like those radar screens with the circle. So looking at screens with abstract shapes. It cuts very quickly between people in all the different rooms, whether it's, you know, the president, the uh, U.S. Air Command, uh, the cockpit. It cuts to stock footage. It's just cutting so fast. And the different kinds of ambience are not consistent from one moment to another. No. <laughs> like one shot that has one kind of ambience will play that ambience into the next moment that's taking place at a totally different location. And then we, when we cut back to that first shot then suddenly it doesn't have any ambience at all and it just plays with this confusion between spaces and so the one concession that they make is everything gets center framed or most of this stuff gets center framed so that your focal point is always in the middle and i think that in itself is a tool to try to impress upon you the folding together of all these spaces into a single space so it becomes impossible to determine what's right and wrong or true and false, what's abstract or, mm. or real, which is the, the plight of the bomber as his wife is trying to convince him that there is no war, which is the truth. But the bomber has been trained not to trust anyone. So we really get put in his headspace in that moment. And also on, on the soundtrack, there's different people shouting at him about the velocity of missiles nearby and while his wife is trying to scream about him about personal stuff and we're seeing all these faces of different people incredible scene and like ralph rosenblum edited this film this is his masterpiece it's an incredible incredible piece of cutting and probably the best cut cindy lamette film and that is saying a hell of a lot and i think that scene is where the contrast in the production design really comes to the fore where you have this very carefully laid out contrast between, for example, the perfectly white room that the president is in and the very dark room that strategic air command is and all the stuff that's in between. So every time it cuts, you have a, without even having to light in a specific way, you have a built-in contrast to the background behind the characters. And that, again, serves to make the cuts more visible, not less. Yeah, the film is so uninterested about hiding away its form. Mm. <laughs> like, and that's one of the things I really like about Like, I, I like movies that are either slow and boring on one hand or that are exuberant about demonstrating their own form to you. Uh, and now I see why Bellatar is your favorite filmmaker ever. He is not at all, but I love him. <laughs> I, I would describe Sidney Lumet as one of my favorites over Bellatar, which is interesting because Sidney Lumet typically not actually thought of deeply as a formalist, right? Like, he's probably best known, I think, for being a really great director of actors, which he is. It's, uh, an incredible director uh, of actors. I would say he, like, if I had to say, like, hang on, I'm kind of reading tea leaves here, but... I've always seen the popular conception of him as like a really good journeyman, gritty New York filmmaker. 
you know? Yeah. Who like directs Oscar winning performances. Yeah. Exactly. Is a big factor of that. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because one thing that is worth talking about in terms of the broader context of failsafe is how lighting affects performances mm -hmm. or how certain people think lighting affects performances. There is definitely, it's definitely not common, especially now, to throw a huge portion of your lead actor's faces into darkness or even blackness. Part of that is because, I mean, there's traditions of quality and studio mandates of like, you know, this is our lead actor. Why are you hiding their face? That kind of thing. That is extremely common. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's 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 an unfortunately common thing where it's like, oh, we put all this work in, into the makeup, production design, whatever. Why aren't we showing it? Which I'm like, um, I disagree with that fundamentally. <laughs> there's, I'm not saying all actors, but with a lot of actors, I think there's an impression that if you distort their faces, if you obscure parts of their faces, it obscures their performance or it distorts their performance and it takes away from something they're doing. And that's super unfortunate <laughs> that a lot of actors and other people believe that because it certainly can happen, but it, it does not have to be true the same way as any element of the film if it, uh, well, I, I mean, any actor will acknowledge that like they're in the hands of the editors as to whether they give a bad performance or a good performance or a great performance. And the same is 100% true of the cinematography. I mean, there's a scene in Failsafe where Henry Fonda's character, the president, makes like the single most difficult call of the entire movie. <laughs> he does something unfathomable and that is immensely personally difficult for him. And he puts his hand on his face. And so half of his face is covered by his hand and the other half is covered by shadow. So you don't actually see his performance. But you see a little bit of his eye as it's closed. You can see the wrinkle of his face. You can see like the particular way his hand is holding the phone. You can see the slight slump of him. You can hear his voice. And it not only throws more focus on those other aspects of his performance, but because of the nature of what is being obscured and why he's obscuring it, it improves his performance immensely in a moment where he is not playing that moment in a hugely overtly emotional way. And so the alternative is to either not do any of those things and the performance doesn't come through or not do any of those things and have to jack up some aspect of the performance that isn't well suited to the president's character. Hey folks. Will here from the editing table. A thought just occurred to me that Henry Fonda actually does a similar kind of speech in the Oxbow Incident, a 1943 political Western film, where he delivers a pivotal speech late in the film. And during that speech, his face is obscured the entire time by a cowboy hat, which, besides its symbolism, similarly allows a certain kind of emotional reading of the scene that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So I think it's a pretty good mark on Fonda that not only did he allow Lumet to do that in Failsafe, but he did it more than once through his career. Anyway, jumping back into the slipstream of the original recording now. And I think it's worth just thinking a lot about that, about, I, I mean, where we're kind of, I'm kind of going like way offline of talking about contrast specifically, but I wanted to bring it up because 
the use of really high contrasting light on the actors' faces is kind of similarly, literally obscuring half or more of their face at a time. <laughs> like there's a moment where General Black is directly confronting this extremely hawkish civilian advisor to the Pentagon, uh, Grotoshella, and he, he's confronting his philosophy directly. It's one of these big melodramatic moments. And the moment when Grotoshella turns to him and hear, um, understands that he's being challenged, he's, his face is in this huge light sandwich. So the left side of his face is lit and the right side of his face is lit, the extremities of it, like from the edge of his cheeks back. But the center of his face, everything from his cheeks inward is just in total darkness. You cannot read and his performance at all. He's denied too. Yes, like there, and eye lights are like when you can catch a reflection of light in an actor's eye. It's often a way to try to allow them to be expressive within a moment. And eye light is extremely deliberate in this movie. It, it's not like a Gordon Willis in The Godfather type thing where it's just no eye light ever, or a classical Hollywood thing where it's all eye light all the time. Oftentimes in a shot where character would usually be denied eye light, you can tell Gerald Hirschfeld, the cinematographer, specifically has a fixture to provide a character eye light or has specifically moved a fixture to deny another character eye light. It's very interesting. And this moment is a revealing moment for Grotichella. It only lasts for a few seconds, this particular lighting setup. But that moment with the, that light sandwich is really important to his character. And the fact that it's a good point that you're making that he doesn't have eye light. Because if Matthau was being told to play that moment as menacing, um, it wouldn't be in keeping with the character. The character, Grotoshella, is not someone who reveals the fact that he is innately a black or violent person. He's someone who tends to hide it under a general intellectual affability. Yeah, he, he's, he's banal. He makes dark jokes. There's an early part of the movie where a woman is immensely attracted to him because she believes she can see that he is someone who is fundamentally attracted to death and fundamentally loves death. And he rejects her assertion of this and says, I'm not your kind, but he does it by slapping her, which is like the most deeply ambiguous moment of the movie. And not something, by the way, that the movie is at all condoning. <laughs> it's not saying, oh, Grotichelle is the reasonable one. She sucks, so she deserves to be slapped. I, I think that that moment exists to illustrate how deeply broken he is and and kind of fooling himself and it also allows him to adopt a threatening posture and image towards general black as he's being challenged without Mathau having to play the character out of character it allows the subtext to come through better which enhances the performance a lot and i think this is a huge factor in why lamette is a great actor's director, not only because he can direct performances in a great sense where he's good at directing actors to give a good performance to camera. He is, and there's a lot of moments where there's not a lot of formal varnish on the performances where the performances are just incredible in his movies. You can watch any number of Lumet films with great performances where that happens. But he's insanely good at deepening the performances with the formal context of the moments they're taking place in. And the contrast really contributes to that and fails a lot. I mean, these are, uh, it's a, it's, it is a melodrama and people behave more melodramatically, but at the end of the day, it's a movie about a bunch of functionaries, right? So, <laughs> so having the formal tools to amp up some of that emotional underpinning is really helpful to it, I think. Oh yeah. 
Um, one thing I also want to point out is the focal length contrasts, where um, mm-hmm. oftentimes this film makes a habit of employing extremely wide-angle close-ups. And so, just to backtrack a bit, conventional wisdom is that if you're shooting a close-up of a human, uh, you should use a medium-to-long lens, because that will not distort the person's face. If you are, again, shooting 35mm film, and you are in a 20 millimeter lens for example you need that lens needs to be really close to that person to frame a close-up and that proximity will distort that face um i don't personally subscribe to that theory i love wide angle lenses in close-ups but lumet takes it to an extreme here you'll have shots where like henry there's one shot of henry fonda where he looks like a bulb um there's a few actually <laughs> and there's a couple of casio where again he just does not look like the same person as he does in the wide shots because it's such a wide angle lens on him and Lumet is using this to illustrate the inner tension of these characters Um, and what he'll do is he'll cut from these wide angle close-ups to more conventionally framed medium lens maybe medium shots right Um, shots that have a bit more geometric stability to them to illustrate where characters are at mentally without them having to explain themselves or to just build tension, yeah. right? There's one shot of um, Cassio where uh, you don't really know what's wrong with him, but you know something's up because he shot from below in the most unflattering wide-angle close-up imaginable. Um, or Dom DeLuise's big scene where they put like a 25-millimeter lens like a foot away from him, it feels like, and it, it puts him on the spot, right? It, it's a character being literally put on the spot having to answer a question way above his rank and the fact that the lens is so close um really makes you feel for the guy in a way that you know a 50 mil shot wouldn't yeah i mean there's two shots of the president too i mean most of the stuff with the president is shot in in fairly non-distorted lenses but there's three or four shots of him though where he just they just distort his face beyond recognition almost. Yeah, and and there's always good reasons for those contrasts, right? One of them is when he's trying to personally talk to the bomber pilot and tell him to turn back, and mm-hmm. he's the camera's super close on him, and he is distorted, and as you said about Cassio, he's almost unrecognizable. That's because the bomber doesn't recognize him, right? Yeah. Like the, the pilot is not, rec- is not acknowledging that he's really the president, and he's not just someone imitating the president Mm -hmm. and then similarly there's a moment where he's less distorted later where he's giving an order to everyone okay everyone here has to follow my orders to the letter and you are to collaborate with the soviets to shoot down our bombers and a lot of the people under his command do not want to shoot down the soviet bombers there's a fair amount of people who are sympathetic to the idea that the bombers should get through and bomb moscow and so similarly in that moment he's not quite as distorted but he's somewhat distorted right he's he's an image being interpreted by other people Mm -hmm. rather than the rest of the scenes we spend with him where we we seem to be getting a fairly intimate and accurate representation of his thoughts and behavior from moment to moment the shots in the film that aren't distorted are also just as deliberate like you have that scene where towards the very end of the film like after the die has been cast basically and things are going to be a disaster where um the president and his translator are just counting down the clock and discussing the weather and it's a feels like a 35 or 50 mil shot in that range and it's the most kind of maybe the most balanced frame in the whole movie and then obviously you cut from that to one of the most imbalanced so let's talk about sound yeah the sound is in mono which is worth noting mono just means the sound 
everything plays out of the same speaker or if you have like multiple speakers it will play out of those multiple speakers exactly equally there's no separation between different speakers or channels for different sounds that's worth noting because Sidney Lumet actually wanted to have stereo sound for the film but the film was extremely low budget for what they were attempting so they could not afford then fairly new stereo technology and I think this is worth noting because the sound uses a lot of contrast too and you can imagine him contrasting between the left channel and the right channel but nonetheless there's a lot of interesting things going on with the soundtrack less bombastic than the visuals but it's absolutely there one thing is there's hard cuts between ambience very often in this film yes and sometimes even like midline <laughs> like there will be a cut from a plane taking off and the roar of its engine to the light din of a control room or from the inside of a cockpit to a totally silent title card and as you said it'll happen midline right there's the scenes where people are talking to each other over the phone or over the radio are absolutely loaded with moments where Lumet will cut and the sound perspective will completely change to the tinny radio version of the sound and the ambience will hard cut, which is not something super unusual in sound designs for movies that you will have, you know, like hard cuts between ambience. It's a, it, and it's a fairly common tool to use in thriller movies, right? That, that's a long lineage. It, it builds tension when you cut really hard between the sounds in one space and the other. But Failsafe is especially interesting because it will mix up your impression of the sound perspective in a given moment. Sometimes a sequence where they're cutting back and forth between different people and different perspectives, the perspective won't change, right? The sound perspective that is like kind of where we think we're hearing it from. So the president's voice will sound like he's right in the room next to us in one shot. And then when we cut to a different room, he still sounds like he's right next to us. Or he will still sound like he's right next to us, but the ambience will hard cut to the other scene. So it starts confusing your sense of the different spaces. And that's important because you could theoretically, honestly, collapse three of the major spaces of this movie into one. That is a room full of people in the Pentagon, including the Secretary of Defense and a number of Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Air Command, and the President in the phone room, you could imagine it all taking place in either a, the same large space or adjacent spaces, um, somewhat similar to Dr. Strangelove, right? Like one notable difference is that the President is in a room where it's just him and his interpreter in this movie, whereas in Dr. Strangelove, he's effectively in the same, he's in the war room with everybody else. And the splitting of different places is important to the movie because the distinctions between places begin to fall apart and the sound is reflective of that, right? It becomes more and more difficult to try to distinguish between people and what they're thinking and what is going on in a given moment because everything is just so complex, so hard to follow. This follows with the movie's idea that the, the fundamentals of nuclear war are too complex for humans to possibly have a grasp on. And... That's Ooh, entirely... yeah, Robert McNamara. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, is there? A th I, we, I'm sure we could figure out we, how we to do, do a fog, fog of war, war episode. episode someday. Yeah, we could probably do that in our sleep. We just would need a starting point. Um, um, interviews. 
<laughs> go on. But yeah, I mean, so the bit that's the big thing in it is these sudden cuts in ambience, these inconsistent ambiences. I mean, the the fact that these contrasts get confused and the use of really really loud noises that suddenly go quiet and the use of really really quiet moments that suddenly go to really really loud noises this is all just contributing to this high contrast high stakes atmosphere and i would argue that this culminates in the very last moment of the film Mm -hmm. yep when you have um so what happens is spoiler alert the bomb goes off in new york city and this is illustrated by um, a series of documentary clips of just new york Daily Life in New York, I think it's like 10 or 11 clips. And what happens is they freeze frame and using optical printing, the shots artificially zoom in very fast. Um, this repeats about 10 times and each zoom lasts about a second. And with these sudden distorted screeches of sound during every zoom. But I'd say importantly, and we can play the screeches now. The screeches are not continuous. It goes from a fully saturated white noise to silence 10 or 11 times, right? So, right? And so you have this, every time it zooms, you have this aural contrast from a fully saturated white noise to avoid, <laughs> to, you know, over and over and over. If there's an aural equivalent to cutting from white to black to white, it's that. <laughs> so the film ends on a series of audio and visual contrasts that are as extreme as you could possibly make them. And then it ends. Yep. Well, and right after, it's worth noting, right after all of these cuts, the final images of the movie are, after that final zoom in on a child's face, it cuts from the image of the child to 13 frames of just pure white, no contrast, just pure white, mm-hmm. followed by blackness, and both both the pure white and the pure black in total silence. And this this echoes the intro title card of the film. Remember, it was failsafe, black over white, then white over black, then black over white, and then cutting into the film. And so we get that, the white and then the black, and then that is the end of the film. And that's shocking in itself. But then you have the weird, the crazy soundscape over the credits. Yes, and the soundscape over this credits, similarly, it, it also forms a bookend with the beginning of the film because it is the sound of a jet engine, it sounds like. You have a crowd? Yep. Alongside a crowd at a bullfight, similar to the beginning, like people are yelling, ole. And it gradually gives way to this really high-pitched tone, this uh, this agonizingly high-pitched tone. And that high-pitched tone is specifically the tone of the phone in Moscow melting because of the bomb. Then finally, the sound just cuts away at the end. And I love these credits for a few reasons. One reason is that, I mean, if you've gone this far without seeing the film, it's your own fault. But the first time most people I know have seen the film, they are absolutely shocked that it is the ending of the film. (laughs) It is incredibly shocking. Then you have the studio-imposed silence, though. (laughs) of that last title card which again i want to emphasize this has something to do with lumet's wishes and in fact this is explicitly against lumet's wishes but i think it's great Mm -hmm. you have the um uh the lawyer recommended title card uh over silence that i think is the the most chilling way possible to end the film it is the stated position of the department of defense and the united states air force that originally enforced system of safeguards and controls ensure that occurrences such as those depicted in this story cannot happen 
<laughs> and I can't think of a better way to end that film, actually. Yeah, Lumet hated that, but that's one Lumet should have welcomed that with open arms. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine a more a, great, a better way to illustrate the danger than that title card, actually. <laughs> Another thing I love about the ending is that the the title comes up before the rest of the credits do. It doesn't go directly to credits. Mm -hmm. It's another bookending gesture, but the title Failsafe slowly scrolls up. Usually the film is depicted as being called Fail-Safe, right? There's a, there's a little hyphen in there. There's actually no hyphen in the title, which I think is important. Failsafe is two separate words that are being contrasted. It's not one combined word. Mm -hmm. it, the idea is that fail and safe are fundamentally contradictory notions, right? <laughs> it's also the idea like that, that we've failed to keep people safe, that kind of thing. And so especially combined over a cheering crowd, it just takes on this incredibly acerbic quality. Let's see. Um, I was kind of unfavorably compare this film with Judgment in Nuremberg. But uh, uh, we could do that if you want. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. We have to talk about Judgment at Nuremberg at some point on this podcast. And okay, let's talk about. I, I don't think I'm up for doing a whole episode on it. No, oh no, please. That would be as monotonous as that movie. Judgment at Nuremberg, a fascinating film in my opinion, because of how boring it is. Um, so Judgment of Nuremberg is uh, Stanley Kramer's acclaimed 1961 film about the Nuremberg trials in which Nazi high profile Nazi war criminals were tried uh, and convicted of crimes against humanity. Um, it specifically focuses on the judge's trial without getting too deep into Judgment at Nuremberg. It was definitely a turning point in Devin and I kind of realizing what we admire in, in cinema and in film form and it's also, I think, a good cautionary tale for filmmakers. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it simple. There's a shot set up in Judgment at Nuremberg. It happens in the first court scene. And it's just the most incredible camera movement, right? So you have, like, you have Maximilian Schell, a very forceful actor. Um, then you have this, basically a 360-degree dolly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it just, it's, it's incredible technically, it's super expressive. It, it gets across the, the stakes and importance of the moment. And it just like an incredibly strong start to the movie. Right? Yeah, like, so 20 minutes in, we're seeing Maximilian Schell give his speech and Stanley Kramer circling the camera around him. It's just a dynamite moment. We're going, wow, is this a masterpiece? Yeah. <laughs> Do we have to watch every Stanley Kramer movie now? <laughs> and the next courtroom scene... The exact same shot happens. And then the third courtroom scene, exact same shot. And every every kind of moment where a crescendo of verbal, what do you call it? An oratorical crescendo happens. You got that exact same. You, sometimes they throw a, a zoom in there. <laughs> if you get a zoom, you get a 360-degree dolly. And that's how they cover every single moment like that. And there's like 12. Yeah. <laughs> And it's it's such a shame. Um, and there's there's a few shots like that in the movie where they'll just repeat a dynamite setup ad nauseum. And it, you, you know you can use repetition in interesting ways in movies. There's nothing wrong with reusing a setup per se. But the problem is that there's absolutely no arc or sense of progression or nuance. There's the no structure to that, it. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's no there's no sense of like why is this time different than last time um which is a basic problem of motivation why are we moving the camera in this way you can kind of imagine that maybe it was stanley kramer really wanted the shot for a particular moment in the film right and it took a ton of time to set up and so part of maybe how getting that shot was rationalized was, well, we can use this for different moments in the movie to really punch them up, but it's a mistake. Like the more of those moments should have been played out in simpler, like more functional and easy to get coverage. Honestly, <laughs> like if they were going to do that, it's not a good trade-off. Ironically, it's, it's a, it's a failure of maximalism. It's a lack of contrast. <laughs> Yeah. It, it's hey. yeah no, to tie that into failsafe right? i think part of what makes failsafe work so well in, in, in comparison is that um it is carefully structured so that they don't like do the crazy 360 degree dolly in scene one because they're saving that for the moment in which the effects of that shot will be most applicable <laughs> right they're tailoring camera movements to moments and with reference to each other. Um, and that was a real aha moment for us because um, it clarified why why do we like this gesture in this movie but not in this movie? And so much of it is about structure and context and motivation. That's why we don't like Judgment Nuremberg and aren't big fans of Stanley Kramer around here. <laughs> I don't even know if Judgment at Nuremberg is a bad movie. It's just such a missed opportunity. Yeah. While we're talking about that, I mean, it's worth mentioning. Lumet has so many great movies, and there's so many of them are so different from each other. And Failsafe is my favorite, but yeah, it's almost, I mean, he's done his fair share of not great films, but, you know, there's... Yeah, um, he's done some bad ones. I do not like Murder on the Orient Express. I don't think it's a good movie. Let's talk about contrast in terms of image processing because that's one thing we haven't really touched on. Mm -hmm. Failsafe, its chief tools for creating high contrast images, I think, are lighting and production design. But the specific choice of film stock also plays into that. Um, but there's only so much you can do with film stock uh, in terms of high quality motion picture stock. You can shoot on like low dynamic range reversal film, which just means film that film that has an inherently high contrast, which is a lot more tougher to light for actually. Um, but Failsafe was not shot on excessively high contrast reversal stock. It was shot in high quality negative black and white stock. There are ways to juice the contrast using printing techniques and all that, but it doesn't feel like they did much of that. But especially in the modern digital age, you can essentially have unlimited control over the contrast of your final image. But I want to draw a line between that and lighting and production design. If you, for example, light a scene, where the lighting is totally flat, right? Omnidirectional, coming from all angles. You're not really going to be able to create a low-key, high-contrast image in post without really jacking up the contrast artificially. And that has a fundamentally different effect than lighting in a contrasty way. So if you, if to use kind of lighting terminology that I try and de-emphasize, but it's useful here, if you're going to have a key light and a fill light that are approximately similar brightness um, and you're going for a contrasting image that's not necessarily something that can be accomplished in post and vice versa if you have an image that is 
very high contrast on your set and you're aiming to go for a low contrast look in post, that is a fundamentally different operation than lighting low contrast on a film set. Those are two very different things. And there are a million ways to add or reduce contrast in your image, but they have different effects. And that's kind of a sidebar for people who are actually doing this, especially cinematographers who are trying to learn, colorists who are trying to learn. What you can do with cinematography on a film set, you're operating in three dimensions. You have a lot more options than in post. And really think about that when you're designing your image, starting with the script. We haven't talked that much about production, the production design in general, but it's really worth talking about how well contrasted these different spaces are. I mean, there's the president's space, which is just white walls with some lighting, you know, differentiating them a little bit to creating some gradient so that it's not just a totally blank space. But it's white walls and the corners of those walls create these vertical lines along the frame. And there's the door and there's the desk and there's this extremely ominous lamp above them, which Devin noticed. And not I a lamp, can't ventilation I tube. Yeah, sorry, uh, uh, ventilation tube. Uh, Devinos, I never did that. It's bas it's a mushroom cloud. The imagery is meant is a is it's a metaphor for a mushroom cloud <laughs> hanging above the president. Then you've got the air command center, which is very very right angle heavy. It's very busy. There's a lot of visual activity going on, but the lights are squares. They're like sort of squares tilted 45 degrees of diamonds you could say but <laughs> but they're, they're squares and then there's all these rectangular desks they're aligned in neat perpendicular and parallel rows and columns on the floor of the space there are windows overlooking it that are rectangular there's just a heavy heavy emphasis in that space there's the big board at the front there's a heavy emphasis in the space of rectangular space of right angles and then there's the war room, as it's called, which has a V-shaped Oh, Do they uh, call it the desk. war room in this? They do call it the wow. war room. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. <laughs> there's a whole, there is a whole history between this movie and Strange Love that's been well covered that I invite anyone listening to look up. It is interesting. Um, but the war room has a V-shaped desk, so immediately not a right angle desk. Desk looks like a bomber wing. Oh, yeah. Oh, there, there's one detail in the president's room that I only noticed this time. And that's that the president is the one character in the whole film to take off his dark jacket to reveal the white shirt underneath. Oh, I never realized that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because he's, he's the one who makes the decision that no one else will or can. Exactly. And it's not like right. a 12 Angry Men thing where all the characters slowly kind of disrobe <laughs> because it's hot. Right. This is the one character who does and no one else does. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's smart. Everyone seems to be sweating. I don't know why no one else is cooling down. Yeah. The president, I mean, th this is establishing the president is smarter than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> the space of the war room. I mean, the walls seem to be slanted. There's a window overlooking them that seems to be slanted. So there's a much heavier emphasis on non-right angles. There's this really heavy emphasis on differentiating the spaces, not just in a way so that it's coherent for us to know where we are at a given time, because you don't need to make such fundamental geometric choices in order to do that. But it's interesting because it characterizes each space in different ways, right? It characterizes the president's space as a very internal mental space, right? It's, it's an... It's a very reflective 
purgatorial space. The president mentions as he's going in that it feels like it might be hell. It's hot enough down here. It might be hell. The Air Force Command Center, all the, the heavy emphasis on right angles, on rows, creates a extremely ordered space, right? There's a mm-hmm. huge emphasis on chain of command, on following order. The desks are in a perfect grid? Yeah. It's worth noting that there's only two moments, I think, where someone actually stands at the head of the room and faces in the other direction. Otherwise, everyone's always facing forward. And one of those two moments is when, with the attempted coup. Yep. And the other moment is when everyone in the room is cheering when an American bomber shoots down a Soviet fighter and General Bogan stands up to face them to say, knock it off. Yeah. This isn't a football game. So it's, a, it's always a moment of actual distinct reordering and opposition when someone does that. Mm. And then you've got the war room where the angles are not right angle. They're more complex. They're, they're searching for new angles, right? It's, it's more of an intellectualizing space. So I'll just, I'll, I'll just very well conceived, very, very carefully implemented. I only have one more thing, and that's to specify that if you intend on watching Failsafe, which I highly recommend, it's great. It's just about one yep. of the best movies to come out of the US of A. Yep. Please, please watch the 4K restoration available on Criterion Blu-ray. I believe it's also depending on your region on the Criterion channel as well. Um, It's well worth your time to track down. Um, It is so far and above the best version of the movie that exists. Um, The old Blu-ray and the old DVD um, are based off an ancient master with contrast that is ironically way too high and... A weird auto gain thing. Every time it cuts, kind of the 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 luminance levels have to reorient themselves. It makes the movie worse. So the new restoration is, I think, the way to watch it. Watch it that way, please. If the only way you can see this movie is by the old Madman Blu-ray, which you might only be able to get your hands on if you're in Australia, or the old DVDs, and that's that's the only way you can watch it. Like, still watch it. That is how we fell in love with this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it's still an amazing experience. I can't think of many movies that have made a bigger impression on me. Yeah. And of the big nuclear suspense movies that came out that year, Seven Days in May, Doctor Strange Love, and this, it's handily my favorite. At the very least, I think it's the one with the most interesting perspective on nuclear war and certainly the one that is the most incredibly well and originally crafted thanks for lending us your ear today Paige smith is our associate producer if you enjoy this podcast please give us a rating and review on itunes that really helps us out and consider joining our patreon to keep the show going and gain access to some cool bonus content our slack discussion channel the ability to ask questions and more you can find that at patreon.com slash filmformally, and you can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Next week, we're going to talk about Agnes Barda and how some of her films challenge the distinctions between videography, film, personal video essay, biographies, whatever you want to call it and how that can make it challenging to draw clear critical distinctions on films. We'll see you then.